the last time I preached, it was on uh, the ascension of Christ. And uh, so I want to follow up on the end of that with preaching a sermon, the full-blown sermon on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Uh, During Ascension Week, we had friends visit us from Morgantown, West Virginia. And while they were here, they made a trip to Amish country and only to discover the majority of stores were closed in celebration of Ascension Day. Uh, the day that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father from where he rules and reigns right now. It was an inconvenience for our, uh, our friends, but I thought, how great is that? Really, how great is that? Business owners operating their businesses according to the Christian calendar. And it really just kind of thrilled me and got a hold of me. So I, I started thinking again about the authority and supremacy of Christ. And I read and, and listened to the book of Col- Colossians in different translations over the next few days. And the more I read, the more excited I became. I also went back to a book I had read by Stephen Siemens. It was called The Unseen Real. And uh, in, in that first chapter, Stephen says this. He says, the fact that today... Right now, today, Jesus is reigning as the ascended Lord both validates and vindicates his yesterday, which is his life, his death and resurrection, and assures and guarantees his tomorrow, his final return and victory. Well, I love Jesus. I love theology. Don't get excited that, about that word. That, theology is just what we believe and what we say about God. I love the Bible, I love the church and Christianity, and I want to combine all my loves this morning by preaching a theological sermon. Don't get up and leave on me, it's going to be as interesting as I can make it. I'm going to preach a theological sermon on the supremacy of Christ by way of comparison with the Bible, the church, and Christianity. And I want to show that although Jesus, the Bible, the church, and Christianity are all related and interconnected in some very obvious, strategic, and essential ways, they are not the same thing. If we confuse the critical distinction between these four realities, we run into what I believe is serious theological problems that have real life consequences. So I, I submit this to you for your consideration and contemplation and to mull over in your mind and see what the Lord would have to say. I want to start first with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the word of God the eternal Logos assuming human flesh in the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. We all are familiar with, maybe even have memorized John 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word, he was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him and with Without him, not one thing was made that has been made or has come into being. What has come into being in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. And the word, the Logos, became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Then jump down to that 14th verse, and this is, or chapter 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Since 325 AD and finalized in 381 AD, now that's been for the last 1700 years, this is what the church has said most definitively about Jesus. It's known as the Nicene Creed. 
We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake... He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. That's good news, isn't it? (laughs) Well, Well, we'll return to Jesus later on. But what about the church? Now, this is not a complete definition. This is just a working definition. The church is the gathered community of the baptized who confess Jesus is Lord and seek to live in obedience to the Lord. The organized, visible church on earth, the church in this age is not perfect. Now, you're not surprised, are you? You know why? You know why, don't you? Because it's comprised of imperfect people, I heard that. It's comprised of new Christians who still need to overcome uh, some destructive, sinful patterns of behavior and thinking and attitudes all the way up to saints who have been in the church for years who are still overcoming unchristlike attitudes, perhaps priorities. You see, in the church, we're called to be patient with each other because all of us, every one of us, are on this journey of becoming more like Jesus. We all have some emotional and relational scars from which we're being healed or we have been healed. We have quirks and idiosyncrasies and personality traits that differ from each other. (laughs) So we really have to work at loving God by loving each other. Now, add to that, The sin that some may be dealing with, but won't admit it or confess it or abandon it. The good news is, the promise is, if we confess that destructive, sinful behavior, attitude, whatever it is, God is faithful and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And don't forget that humility and self-awareness of what we are compared to to what we're called to be, goes a really long way in our journey to becoming like Christ. All of us, what we are, bring into the church with us who we are. Now, that's not to excuse sin or hypocrisy because it certainly can, can reach egregious levels that are unacceptable and something has to be done about it. I get all of that. But I think we just need to approach what we think about the church and more realistic expectations. I've known people who have left the church for some of the silliest reasons. Their expectations of what people in the church should be were were not realistic, so they get offended and they leave. So I'm just trying to present a, a realistic expectation of what we are as a church. And the problem comes when people get caught up in the, the romantic search for that one true church, that one perfect church. If I could just find that one perfect church, if I could just find that one true church, it happens all the time. It happens uh, to the Orthodox, it happens to the Catholics, it happens to the hundreds of Protestant denominations and all of its variations. 
Sharon and I, uh, or Sharon had her annual get-together with her sisters a couple weeks ago in Crossville, Tennessee, and lucky for me, the husbands got to go along. And uh, on that last leg of the journey, we got off the interstate and we took some two-lane country back roads and we became amused at all the variations of Baptist just in that 15 to 20 mile stretch. Once we started paying attention, we noticed at least, at least a minimum, nine different variations. There's the primitive Baptist. There was the missionary Baptist. There was the separatist Baptist. There were the free will Baptists. There were the missionary Baptists. There were the union Baptists. There were the American Baptists, the independent fundamental Bible Baptists, Baptists that baptize only in flowing water. You know, and the sad thing is the majority of them won't have anything to do with each other because they each belong to the one real true church. They may say hi at Walmart to each other, but there's no worship together. There's no fellowship. There's no studying the word together because, you know, they're part of the true church. It reminded me of a story of, of a man uh, who was stranded on an island because of a storm and an and ensuing boat crash. After a couple of years, he was discovered. So before his departure, he showed his rescuers around the island. He showed them his home and he showed them the church he had built. And when his guest inquired of the third structure he had built, he replied, well, that's the church I used to go to. Often there are those who end up claiming that their church, whether it be Orthodox or Catholic or Protestant church, whatever church may be, is the one true church. And they end up insinuating or they come right out and say that people outside their church are not saved or at least they're not real Christians or if they are, they're third class Christians. Now, most of us have experienced or seen that before. I've been on the receiving end of that. It's uncomfortable. I'm not considered a, a bona fide Christian by that church, so I can't receive communion in that church. Or as a, a teen, teenager, I, I remember walking into a, a little holiness church during a revival, and it was immediately assumed I was not a Christian. I don't know if it was my long hair or my motorcycle jacket or what that caused him to make that assumption. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, these really are sad moments. The mistake people make is they confuse the church with Jesus. Hear me out, don't, don't make that mistake. This whole sermon is about not confusing things. Is the church related to Jesus? Well, yes, it is. It's, it's the bride of Christ, but it's not Christ. It's not the church that saves, it's Jesus that saves. And guess what? Jesus saves people into all kinds of churches, whether we like it or not. He saves some into the Catholic church, some into the Orthodox. Sometimes he saves them into the Nazarene church or the Methodist or Baptist or the Charismatic or, or whatever. That's just the way it is. God is not bound by our structures. There are tons and tons of churches that fall into the confines of the historical, Orthodox, creedal Christianity, and none of them are Christ. And none of them are perfect in this life. John 17, in, in that great high priestly prayer, Jesus says this, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, the world's gonna know we're Christians by how we treat one another, how we love each other. So we need to learn to speak well with one another. We don't need to say, I found that one true church and it's mine, not yours. 
I'm in and you're not. Let's not make that theological mistake. Well, what about the Bible? Here's my brief working definition. There's a much fuller definition in the manual of the Church of Nazarene that I wholeheartedly agree with and endorse. But this working definition, the Bible is the sacred canonical text of the church, the scriptural witness to Jesus Christ, and the prime source for the theology of the church. And by, again, by theology, that's just what we think about God and, and how, what we say about God. So where did the Bible come from? Did God just drop it into a, a field one day? No. The Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men, confirmed by the church. The Bible came to us through the church, and what the church did was take the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and we appended it to our own scriptures as this enormous prequel that gives us the entire backstory and context which allows us to understand the New Testament. The first and second testaments inform each other. We received the Hebrew Bible from the Jewish folks, and we said, thank you, and then we appended it to the New Testament. Now, the church, over time, recognized and gave confirmation to the Spirit-inspired letters and Gospels. What we recognize is the Spirit-inspired canonical text rose to the surface. Their authority kind of made their way to the top, rose to the surface as they were passed around and read to the churches. Uh, the Muratorian Canon, which is believed to date back to 200 AD, is the earliest compilation of can uh, canonical text resembling our New Testament. It wasn't until the 5th century, well, uh, and then it wasn't until the 5th the, the century that all the Christian churches came to a basic agreement on the biblical canon. And we ended up with 27 canonical books in the New Testament and 39 in the Old. Now, remember, this is about a thousand years before the first printed Bible came along in 1455. So if you encountered scripture, you heard them read in church. And over time, the church said, we want to hear these and not those. The early church said, we like those early ones, those, are, those original ones, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're not so keen on those Johnny-come-lately Gnostic gospels of Mary and Thomas and Philip and Judas and others. Those are, they're a little weird. Luke has his acts and that, we like that. We like Paul's epistles and some of the other epistles. Revelation's a little weird, but it speaks, seems to speak to us with the authority of the spirit. So let's, let's, let's embrace it, let it in. So we have given to us by the church, the canonical text, the Bible that informs our theology. The Bible the written word of God is subordinate to the Logos, the living word of God, who is Jesus Christ. And the point I'm just making is that the Bible isn't Jesus. Jesus and the Bible are not the same thing. Jesus of Nazareth is the crucified, risen Savior, not a book. It points to Jesus. Everything about the Bible points to Jesus. For example, we have the obsolete Old Testament laws, obsolete for us as Christians, saying that we can't have shrimp. <laughs> well, I can have shrimp. My wife can't have shrimp because she's allergic now to those kind of things. But, and she loves crab cakes. I feel, I feel bad for her. But I can have shrimp. 
I can have shrimp and I can have crab cakes and crab legs and lobster and clams and all that. The Old Testament uh, says you can't have a garment with both linen and wool woven together. Well, I, I do. I have those. Or we have that New Testament cultural consideration that we regard as not applicable. And so we don't say to our ladies among us, oh, oh you women out there, you're in here praying and singing and praising the Lord, and you don't have a hat on, or you don't have any kind of head covering on. We can't have that. And I can show you those verses, and, th and there are those who say, well, we got to be just like that. And then some, not all, but some become weird and mean and sectarian and exclusive, and they think they're the one true church. Now, we know that made sense in the first century in Corinth, but it doesn't make sense in the 21st century in, in Medina today. Now, some of these are, are minor problems, shrimp, wool and linen, hats or head coverings. But more seriously, the Bible does not give us the final word on some other subjects like the institution of slavery. Both the Old Testament and New Testament just kind of take slavery as an assumption. It's just part of life. It's just part of the culture in which the Bible was written. That's just the way it was. And in their mind, that's just the way it is. It's spoken of in ways that they tried to manage it and maybe at times to, to mitigate suffering, but there doesn't seem to be an overall vision to just abolish it. There are seeds of it uh, in Philemon where Paul is dealing with the master of a runaway slave and some of Paul's writings in Galatians and Romans hint at it, but you can't get around the fact that in Ephesians 6, I think, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 6, it says, slaves obey your masters in fear and trembling. It's there. We, we, you just can't get around it. The problem is easy to overcome as long as you don't confuse the Bible with Jesus. What the Bible does completely and perfectly is point to Jesus. What the Bible needs to do perfectly, it does perfectly. Are you all with me? You need to take a break. You need to stand up and stretch. We're, we're halfway through, folks. Now, that wasn't too bad, was it? And really what I'm describing is a Protestant problem. 500 years ago, there's what we call the Protestant Reformation. There, there had to be a Reformation because the European Renaissance Church was as corrupt as corrupt could be. There's no two ways around it. It was a mess. Something had to happen. It had to be reformed. So Martin Luther is what happened. Unfortunately, it was a divorce instead of a reformation. Divorces are unpleasant and they're ugly, especially if children are involved and there are custody dis disputes, and there were. Now, I'm using an analogy here. And I heard this analogy several weeks ago in a sermon by Brian, John, uh, Brian Zond uh, on Jesus and the church, and, and I loved it. I love this analogy. Uh, so, so work with me here. And some of the family ended up with Catholic mom and some with Protestant dad. The divorce settlement, which was the Reformation, it happened because of irreconcilable differences. Catholic mom got almost everything. Catholic mom got the long history of the church, the tradition, the connection directly to the creeds and all that. And all that Protestant dad got was the Bible. So he had to make a lot out of the Bible and he did. And to Protestant dad's credit, 
He did a lot of good with the Bible. Protestant textual scholarship, it sets the bar because all that Protestant dad had was the Bible. So he had to make a lot out of it, and he did, and did a fantastic job. You know, I'm one of the lucky recipients of all that scholarship. I have boxes and boxes of commentaries. They're in my basement now because I took them off my shelves when I retired as a pastor and don't have a place in my home to display all of them because it would take a whole room lined with shelves all around. My, uh, my Kindle, man, it's, it's loaded with commentaries. So I'm a recipient of all that great scholarship. And I love the Bible. I love reading the Bible. I love uh, applying it to my life. I love studying it. To me, the fun in preaching is, is the preparation, just being in the word. Um, but in the end, don't try to make the Bible more than it is. Don't require it to, to be the same as different forms and variations of Christianity. To, to some, the Bible equals Christianity. And I think that brings confusion because, and if you do believe the Bible equals Christianity, then I'd ask, which brand, which brand, which version, which tribe of Christianity equals the Bible? To which that person would probably reply, reply to me, oh, mine, of course. So let's move on to the fourth thing, Christianity. What do I mean? Christianity is the religion of beliefs and practices developed over time by the church in response to Jesus Christ. Now, I can hear some evangelicals or some pop culture Christians saying, no, 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 no. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. You heard that? Maybe you've said it. I've said it before. Christianity, by definition, by any person who has thought this thing through, is a religion. And I chuckle to myself when this tired cliche is used by those in the American evangelical church that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. Now, to confuse Christianity, to call Christianity a relationship is to confuse Christianity with guess who? With Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus Christ with whom we have a relationship, not the religion of Christianity. But if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can thank the church, the Bible, and Christian religion, the Christian religion which passed on the gospel of Jesus Christ from generation to generation. If we refuse to acknowledge that Christianity is religion, we drift toward claiming that Christianity is the absolute confusion, absolute truth uh, confusing Christianity with Jesus. Christianity doesn't claim that Christianity is absolute truth. Christianity confesses that Jesus Christ is absolute truth and Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't combine the two into one. Christianity is a religion. Jesus is the incarnate Logos, the crucified, risen person of Jesus of Nazareth that we just sung about this morning and gave praise to. They're not the same. They're connected. They're related. One comes from the other. Christianity comes from Christ, but Christianity is not Christ, and don't confuse them. Now, the good thing about being, uh, the good thing, now there are a couple of good things. You ready for those good things? A good thing about Christianity being a religion is that, as such, it's capable of growth and development and change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever, because Jesus is true God 
from true God, begotten, not made, God of very God. Jesus Christ is the perfection of goodness and truth and beauty. The church, on the other hand, as we talked about, is not perfect. So we don't say about Christianity, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we can say that it is capable of growth and development and change over time. You just look at church history to verify that. So, for example, when we talked about the issue of the Bible and slavery that I kind of just left hanging, as the church progresses toward the truth of who Christ is, then we're able to say, just wait a minute, wait, 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 hold on. The only ethical position regarding slavery in light of Christ is abolition. We can't change the Bible. It's, it, it's a closed canon. It, it's fixed. We can't take out Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 and 1 Timothy 6 where it says, slave, obey your, your masters. The Bible is going to say forever, slaves, obey your masters. But Christianity says something other. Now, I get it. There are, there are, there are verses I go to like in Christ, you know, there is no slave nor free, nor male nor female, nor Junior Gentile, but some people don't see that as applied to this issue. They want it printed out in black and white, you know, and it's 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 there. But you you know, I, I visited a Civil War cemetery while we were in in Crossville, Tennessee. Quite interesting, the Confederate flags and everything. The main attraction was a Confederate soldier who had killed a hundred Union soldiers because they had raped his wife and and his daughter and and uh, killed his son. Uh, and I, I'm aware that both sides during that time used the Bible to prove their position against slavery and for slavery. So, you know, it's just not there in black and white. Uh, and we know that Christianity is a product of its time and culture. And this is perhaps the best way that we could understand and how to move forward to try to maintain some sort of social cohesion. That's what they were doing as we see how it was dealt with in the Bible. But as we progress in the light of Christ, we say, hey, hold on just a minute. That's absurd. You know, in Christ, it's not slaves obey your masters, but masters free your slaves in the name of Jesus. And let's abolish the entire institution, which I think everyone agrees with today. Uh, the guy that wrote that song, Amazing Grace, when he came to Christ, he didn't see, see it that way. Uh, while he's up in his quarters in the ship reading his Bible and praising God and in prayer, he has a boat full of slaves that he's taken from a country where he's just captured them to, to another land that will buy them. But over time, as he followed Christ, he was a big advocate of the abolition because the living Christ, the Logos, was alive in his heart. Another good thing about Christianity being a religion is that I don't know about you, but I need some religion. And by that, by religion, I mean it's that which keeps me rooted in healthy spiritual practices that are good for the soul. Corporate worship, group Bible study, discipleship of giving to the church and giving alms to those in need, the prayers, the creeds, the church calendar, Merry Christmas, Happy Easter, and all that. Some say I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Well, I found that the religion of Christianity helps me become more spiritual. 
Now, I know there's bad religion of hypocrisy and abuse. I know that, and I'm, I'm not talking about that. Jesus, it may surprise you, Jesus did not rail against religion per se. He railed against hypocrisy and all the religious authorities who were hypocritical and abusive. Jesus' family and Jesus himself was a religious man, and he expected his followers of that day to be religious, of course, as he was. And so the impulse, just the, the impulse to say religion is bad, you don't get from Jesus. Whether you know it or not, you get it from Voltaire and Nietzsche and Marx, who said religion is the opiate of the people, maybe a little bit from Freud. And that's where we're getting it. You got to understand to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not religious. We kowtow to the arrogance of modernity. Well, what's that? Well, that's our age that says if you, if you believe, believe in anything that's pre-modern, you're uncouth, uncool, and just a little bit stupid. <laughs> and by pre-modern, I, I mean if you believe in anything that can't be observed or proven by the scientific method, if you believe in anything that can't be observed by your physical senses, then you're uncouth, uncool, and maybe a lot stupid. And that's the arrogance of modernity. I think modernity for, you know, I thank modernity for a lot of things. When I go to the dentist, <laughs> I thank modernity. When I, when I go to the doctor and enjoy the, the up-to-date technology, when I use my cell phone, I, you know, I, I love modernity. But it's not the paragon of wisdom in all things. Now, you might notice as we talk about Jesus, the church in the Bible and Christianity, that the second and the fourth one are, are tied together. The church and Christianity are similar, but they're not the same. We, not, we might describe the church as lived Christianity. Unlived Christianity is just theoretical, and really no one needs that. Now, I like to stress that I don't, I don't believe anything I've said so far should cause anyone to think that I have a low view of the church or the Bible, or Christianity. I got to think about the church. Man, I've, I grew up in the church. Uh, front row, right there was my seat. I went to church whenever no one else did in my family. And, and I love the church. I found my wife in the church. Uh, I was educated at a church institution. I've had uh, men and women and people of the church and Sunday school teachers mentor me and show me what the Christ life looks like. I love the Bible. I, I, I love Christianity. But what I'm, what I'm emphasizing here is the ultimate high view of Christ. I've said all that I've said in order to stress the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we run into theological problems when we try to make the church, the Bible, and Christianity equal to Jesus. You know, in Orthodox and Catholic churches, they pretty much make that mistake. They make the church equal to Jesus. They make the church the guardian of salvation. They, they still believe Jesus is, is our salvation, but they, they make the church the guardian of salvation through Jesus. And many Protestant circles try to make the Bible equal to Jesus. The Bible's in the manger, not the baby Jesus. And I think that's a problem. Let's go to Colossians 1.15. I love this passage, and this is where it, it all started. <laughs> Uh, after Ascension Day in Amish country, but this is where it all started when thinking about the sermon. This is the apostle setting forth the supremacy of Christ. And you are welcome to read this with me. In fact, I like for us to. Can we read this? 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things whether in earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Then go on to Ephesians. Christ fills all things everywhere with himself. Wait, that, you grasp that? The whole universe from the highest heaven, cleared down to Hades itself, has been filled with Christ. He descended to the dead. That's what the Apostle Creed and the scripture tell us. He invaded the realm of the dead. He made death the doorway to eternal life. Now, folks, Christ fills the whole universe with himself. Let's go and read the Hebrews 1.3. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3. Notice that this text from the Bible references the church, and it certainly informs the Christian religion, but the star of the show is Jesus Christ. The star is not the Bible which is telling us this, The star is not the church of which Jesus is the head. The star is not Christian religion that develops out of this kind of thinking, but the star is Jesus Christ himself. Now notice, Paul says in six ways, we're in the home stretch now, this is it. This is the last year notes, right down the bottom of that page. Very short words, you can handle it, you can do it. He says six times in all things. He says all things were created by Christ. And then Paul says all things were created for Christ. Christ is the telos, the purpose of all creation. Where Christ is where all, is where all things are headed because they are all for Christ. Ascension Day reminds us that Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself. And we are moving toward Christ possessing all because it's all for him And guess what? Then he gives it to the Father, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that God might be all in all. Christ is before all things. He is true God. From true God, begotten, not made. He isn't created. There was never a time when the Son was not. He is before all things. In him, Christ holds all things together. He is the center that holds. I was thankful for a Christian chemistry teacher at East Fairmont High School. And he didn't, he didn't uh, really discuss this with the class, but he knew I was a Christian. And he got me to the side and we, he started talking about this. He goes, you know, there's a lot we don't know in science. How does that electron keep from flying off as it rotates around that proton, that nucleus? 
He goes, have you ever noticed that scripture? It says, Christ holds all things together. I love that. Man, I, I was grateful for a Christian chemistry teacher. True God from true God. He isn't created. Never a time when the sun was not. He is before all things. All things hold together. Christ has first place in all things, including things like the church, the Bible, Christianity. Christ reconciles all things to himself. Do you get that? All things to himself. This is the hope of universal restoration as written about in Romans 8 and Revelation 21 when he's going to make all things new. This whole universe. What the Bible, the church, and Christianity say about Christ can only said be said about Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the absurdity of trying to say what Paul says about the Christ, about the church, or the Bible, or Christianity? We would never say things like we were created by the church. Well, that's, that's stupid. We wouldn't say that. All things were created for the Bible. What? No, that doesn't make sense. Christianity is before all things? No, it, it's not. Jesus, the church, the Bible, and Christianity, they're all related. They're interconnected, but Jesus reigns supreme. The moment we try to judge the church, the Bible, and Christianity toward equality with Jesus, we're headed, I believe, down some bad theological paths that will get us in trouble. I said the Bible doesn't give us complete and final solutions to all, to all problems like, like slavery. Christianity and the church aren't perfect. They can't be. They don't need to be because they're not God. Christ is the perfect one. He reconciles all things to himself. You know, the best thing about the Christian religion is Jesus. Jesus. I'm just always going to be a Christian. You know why? Jesus. <laughs> when we have Jesus, we have resurrection life in this age, in the age to come, abundant life. Not just in the sweet by and by, but right now. Jesus. As I was finishing up this sermon I ran across a post by the West Virginia South District Superintendent, Brett Layton. And here's what he said. He said, I love what the late great African-American preacher G.E. Patterson said to his congregation just before he died. He said, I want you to know that the Lord is my everything. When I was a sinner, he was my salvation. When I was full of self, he was my sanctifier. When I was lost, he was my way. When I'm conflicted, he's my peace. When I'm confused, he is my truth. When I'm sick, he's my healer. When I'm in trouble, he's my helper. When I'm frustrated, he's my calm. When I'm defenseless, he's my keeper. When I'm lonely, he's my friend. Yes, the Lord is my everything. How can I not trust him? Can I get an amen? My question, do you know Jesus today? I'm not asking, do you know about him? I'm asking if you have entered into a soul-saving, life-transforming relationship with Jesus. And then if you have, have you become part of the church, that gathered community of the baptized who confess Jesus as Lord and then seek to live in obedience to the Lord? If you have, then you are living Christianity because Unlived Christianity is just theoretical and does no one any good. Are you being, by the Spirit, informed and guided by the inspired word which perfectly reveals Jesus and infallibly reveals the way of salvation? Oh, we need that. 
Do you know Jesus today, right now? If not, I want to ask you, what's keeping you from seeking him? What are you allowing to block your road to abundant life right now for eternity? For some I've talked to, it's just a way of life. They don't want to give it up. For others, there's a big roadblock called hypocrisy. Man, this person had, was just a hypocrite. You really would let a hypocrite stand in between you and eternal life? Some people do. They can't get over it. The people in the church just aren't perfect. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? That's the question. And I can answer that one for you. No. In the long run, in the end, whatever is keeping you from Jesus is not worth it and will not be worth it. 